Welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jedgensen, and this is Finarna Jedgensen, and we're the hosts of the Book Talk. And we're happy today to welcome Gemma Deer, who's researcher in residence at the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society in Munich, Germany, which many of you will be familiar with. Um, and she'll be talking about her book, Radical Animism, Reading for the End of the World, which came out with Bloomsbury in 2020. So Gemma, we'll give it over to you. All right. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. And thank you again for all the work you're doing running this series. Um, yeah, it's wonderful to be a part and being such good company. There's a great archive that you're building up of these videos. Um, so yeah, my book, uh, as Dolly just said, is called Radical Animism, Reading for the End of the World. Um, and as the title might suggest, um, the book follows on from others that have been concerned with thinking non-human and non-living forms of agency. So the work of people like Jane Bennett, Bruno Latour, Tim Ingold, and others in uh, new materialism or new animism. Um, but my book really focuses on the animism of language and literature um, and how these particular forms of non-living agency can help us to make sense of an animistic reality more generally um, and also to help us to make sense of the particular context in which we're now enmeshed, namely the Anthropocene and this time of catastrophic climate breakdown. Um, and in terms of the kind of position of the book. I think it is um, both environmental humanities and literary eco-critical um, in that there is a broad argument um, that I make about animism in the Anthropocene, um, but that argument is made through uh, eco-critical readings of various literary texts. Um, and there are also eco-critical close readings of um, non-literary texts, so uh, by writers like E.B. Tyler, the Victorian anthropologist who coined the, the word animism, um, James Fraser and Sigmund Freud, um, the latter who is very important to the book, um, because one of the things that I'm trying to show and demonstrate is that literary effects are actually at work in all language. They're not restricted to what we kind of think of as, okay, this is, this is literature, these are poems and novels, and they do something different from other kinds of writing. Um, and so just to make sure we're uh, all on the same page, I want to start by just talking briefly about what animism is. Um, as I said, this word was coined by um, E.B. Tyler um, and he used it to refer to um, what he saw to be primitive belief systems, so belief systems that saw life, personhood or agencies beyond the human. Um, so initially it was kind of a derogatory term um, and he saw religion and, and science as kind of progressing on from that. Um, and I, whereas uh, some writers like Jane Bennett, for instance, kind of overtly says, okay, I'm not using this term. Um, I'm consciously using it in an effort to reclaim it from this narrow and ethnocentric origin um, in order to actively call into question the stance from which the animist worldview is de 
discredited as non-modern or primitive um, because it is precisely such a stance, I argue, that has, has led to the hubristic and myopic errors of modern post-Enlightenment culture and the destructive force of its neoliberal capitalist economies. Um, and the book is, it's not an anthropological study. So I don't talk about kind of specific animistic ontologies. Of course, there's wonderful work by people like um, Nurit Bad David, Tim Ingold, Philippe Decola, who do that kind of work. But um, my book is more about recognizing a more generalized animism that is alive in even the most scientific or um, modern, supposedly modern worldview. Um, so this is what the book uh, looks like. It's got some very beautiful roots on the cover. Um, and so any of you who are into etymology as I am will realize that it's a bit of a visual pun because the word radical um, comes from the Latin radix meaning root. Um, so obviously when we hear the word radical, we most often think kind of revolutionary, left wing, um, but originally uh, to radical, to like change something radically would meant to change it at root. Um, and so uh, a radical animism is not just revolutionary, but it's an animism that is at root, an animism that is fundamental to human ways of being in and relating to the world. Um, and this way that words um, mean more than we sometimes realize is really part of what I'm interested in. This is this is what I'm talking about when I talk about the animism of language that kind of you can you can use words, but words are also just using you and they're they're kind of up to things that you aren't necessarily aware of. Um, and so I'm going to then just give you a kind of brief um, outline of the argument of the book. Um, it is framed around what Freud named as three blows to human narcissism. Um, so these were, first of all, the Copernican revolution, when humans realize that they're not the center of the universe. The Darwinian revolution, when humans realize that they're related to all other animals and all other life on Earth. Um, and then uh, the third great blow to human narcissism, Freud says, without so much of a hint of irony, was in fact his own work, the work of psychoanalysis, um, in which humans realize that they are not agents of a conscious rational will, that there are these unconscious irrational forces at work in the human mind. Um, and I suggest that when, when we look at the history of these three blows to human narcissism, we don't actually see humans kind of being taken down a peg or two. What we see is the resilience of human narcissism, um, not in denying the truth of these discovered discoveries, but rather by failing to take them into account by continuing to act as if we are the center of the universe, that we are not interrelated with and dependent on other forms of life and acting as if certainly we are rational, conscious, um, purely intentional beings. Um, and I suggest that, um, the, that climate breakdown arrives as a fourth blow to human narcissism and that this 
this arrives as a direct result of the failure to take into account the previous three blows. Um, and it kind of makes them reverberate. It makes them um, kind of come back materially rather than just intellectually. So whereas before we kind of understood intellectually that we're not the center of the universe and that we're related to other animals, um, now in the ongoing undoing of the material conditions upon which civilization depends, climate breakdown shows us very forcefully that we're not the center of the universe, that we're dependent on other life forms, and that irrational and unintentional forces define our history and particularly our response to climate change. Um, and so the book is divided into four long chapters. Um, the first chapter sketches this idea that I've just told you through a reading of um, Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. Um, and that chapter also gives a kind of history of the term animism. And then the next three chapters use these three blows and kind of shows how the denial or the repression of them um, and the denial and the repression of their animistic force has gone into creating the climate crisis. Um, so the next chapter, of course, centers around the Copernican revolution. Um, and I suggest that it's got kind of two aspects, um, the decentering, but also a rescaling. So when we realized that the earth was not the center of the universe, we also realized that the universe was much vaster than we'd previously supposed. And therefore the human place within the universe becomes uh, relatively much smaller, much more insignificant. Um, and in this chapter, I look at two novels by Virginia Woolf, To the Lighthouse and the Waves. Um, and I read her as a particularly animistic and post-Copernican writer. So a writer who's very attuned to non-human agencies, but who's also attuned to this kind of decentering and rescaling. Um, then the next chapter centers around the Darwinian revolution, which again has um, two aspects. So firstly, of course, that there's no rigorous distinction between human beings and other animals. Um, but secondly, that complexity can be produced without intentional agency. So whereas before, um, you know, with a kind of creator God story, um, there's the notion that a, a mind that is greater than humans is what created everything. But with evolution realized that it's this kind of series of mindless automatic steps that, that go to create all this complexity, including ourselves. Um, and in this chapter, I'm also thinking about how this notion of the, the life of language, the animism language that I'm talking about, might be more than metaphorical. So not only does the life of living beings help us to think the life of language, but actually there's this kind of strange and irrepressible life of language, um, the way that words do things beyond any conscious intention or authorial control, um, that this can actually help us to think the otherness, the strangeness of um, non-human animals, non-human life forms. Um, and in this chapter, I look at two contemporary texts. So um, Helen MacDonald's memoir, H is for Hawk, um, in which she trains a goshawk while mourning the death of her father. Um, and Nicholas Royal's novel Quilt, in which um, a man brings four uh, freshwater stingrays into his house, again, while mourning the death of his father. 
So you can see there's kind of a confluence there. Um, and then this chapter also looks at the at Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland books. Um, and I think about industrialized meat production with regards to those. Um, and I'm going to come back to that and read you a, a short section on, on Alice um, in just a moment. Um, and then the, the final chapter of the book, of course, turns around the psychoanalytic revolution, um, which calls into question the notion of pure or intentional human agency at individual, linguistic, social and global scales, um, an apprehension of which I argue is key to understanding the human responses or lack thereof to global warming. Um, and this chapter looks at Freud's text Beyond the Pleasure Principle um, alongside Shakespeare's Hamlet. Um, and then it also looks at a short text by Clarice Lispector called The Egg and the Chicken. Um, okay, and so that's the outline of the book. And then I'm going to read you a little section about Alice. Living things in Wonderland, Alice included, are sometimes who, sometimes it. They are sometimes food, potential or otherwise, and sometimes friends. Most, but not all, have the power of speech. Some have human faces yet are less than humane, the Duchess and her cook, for example, while some non-human animals seem to fulfil criteria we often reserve for the human, talking, standing upright, wearing clothes, having tea parties, and so on. The effect of all of this is to complicate the distinction between human beings and other animals. Some characters, such as the rabbit and Bill the lizard, are called both it and he, it by the narrator and he by Alice or the other characters. Meanwhile, the Duchess's baby boy, who is for Alice initially a he, is for the narrator and the Duchess an it, she sings a sort of lullaby to it, giving it a violent shake at the end of every line. And then before transforming into a pig, the baby becomes an it for Alice too. The metamorphosis of the baby into an animal seems to begin well before the actual moment of transformation, though, as we will see, there is no moment as such. First, in the middle of a conversation with Alice, the Duchess, with such sudden violence, addresses the baby with the word pig, though whether we are to interpret this as a name or an admonition or even an instruction is not made clear. Shortly after this, the cook, quote, at once set to work throwing everything within her reach at the Duchess and the baby. The fire irons came first, then followed a shower of saucepans, plates and dishes. And as the baby was howling so much already, it was quite impossible to say whether the blows hurt it or not. Because the baby is engaged in a generalised howling and unable to speak, it is, apparent, it is apparently quite impossible to say whether he is suffering as a barrage of metal rains down upon him. This sounds strikingly sim similar to the arguments used by those that support industrialized meat production of pork, for example. The baby at this point, though still ostensibly in the form of a baby, seems to have already begun to be at least a little bit pig. A living creature, a little thing, who or that cannot speak? to be carried and nursed or to be slaughtered and eaten. 
This is the dilemma that Alice next faces. The Duchess leaves, flinging the baby at Alice, who carries him or it outside, where he or it changes into a pig in Alice's arms. If I don't take this child away with me, thought Alice, they're sure to kill it in a day or two. Wouldn't it be murder to leave it behind? She said the last words out loud and the little thing grunted in reply. Don't grunt, said Alice. That's not at all a proper way of expressing yourself. The baby grunted again and Alice looked very anxiously into its face to see what was the matter with it. There could be no doubt that it had a very turn-up nose, much more like a snout than a real nose. Also, its eyes were getting extremely small for a baby. Altogether, Alice did not like the look of the thing at all. But perhaps it was only sobbing, she thought, and looked into its eyes again to see if there were any tears. No, there were no tears. You're going to turn into a pig, my dear, said Alice, seriously. I'll have nothing more to do with you. Mind now. The poor little thing sobbed again, or grunted, it was impossible to say which, and they went on for some while in silence. Alice was just beginning to think to herself, now what am I to do with this creature when I get it home, when it grunted again so violently that she looked down into its face in some alarm. This time there could be no mistake about it. It was neither more nor less than a pig, and she felt that it would be quite absurd for her to carry it further. This is a remarkable passage. There is no instant of transformation, and yet, before we know it, everything has changed. We go from this child to this creature, from murder to leave it behind to absurd to carry it further, from ambiguity between sobbing and grunting, it was impossible to say which, to certainty, no mistake about it, it was neither more nor less than a pig. A grunt is, according to Alice, not at all a proper way of expressing yourself, re revealing an assumption that proper self-expression is limited to human language, to what non-human animals supposedly lack. We know that Alice is not vegetarian, since she mentions eating eggs, lobster and whitings, and would quite happily carve a slice of the mutton if the Red Queen didn't have it swiftly taken away. And so the passage above describes the transition of the baby from fellow to food. While the little thing is still perhaps more or less than a pig, and I wonder, was the baby more than a pig or less? That is to say, while it is not yet absolutely unmistakably pig, Alice still feels an obligation towards it, a responsibility of care represented by her carrying it in her arms. Yet when all uncertainty has gone, not only is the obligation released, it becomes absurd. This is precisely the certainty that human beings have about the distinction between themselves and other animals, a certainty that allows them to justify, condone, and willfully blind themselves to violence against non-humans. It is significant, I think, that it is the cook that plays such a violent role in this scene, for it is predominantly with regards to the production of food, as I have discussed earlier, that we allow violence against animals to occur on a scale that beggars belief, if or when we think of it. Okay, so yeah, that was the passage from my book. I chose that because I hope that 
Uh, Alice is probably a little bit familiar to most people, so hopefully it was easy enough to follow along. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for listening and I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much. Uh, that was very fascinating. So just a reminder to everyone, if you have questions for Gemma, just uh, let us know in the chat uh, and we'll call on you. I thought this was a quite interesting um, you know, glimpse into those mechanisms where people sort out categories, you know, nature, culture, I mean, all these things we, we struggle with also in environmental humanities. I mean, how do we relate to these concepts? Um, environmental history also, you know, what, what is the environment? How do we talk about people and nature, uh, animals, other forms of agency? Uh, so it's, uh, I think, a good uh, way of, in a way, complicating then this distinction, uh, I thought, uh, was done in a very nice way. So when you talked about um, uh, Freud and, and uh, the three blows, you came then to the, in a way, the fourth one, the climate crisis. I was in a way expecting or wondering at least, would the Anthropocene be the fourth one uh, instead of uh, you know, the climate crisis? So I could of course ask, is the Anthropocene uh, a blow to the you know, human idea of itself or is it an expression of the same thing? Um, so, so what are your thoughts on the Anthropocene concept? Where does this fit in here? Yeah, um, I guess. So, I mean, I, I, I do talk about both the climate crisis and the Anthropocene almost interchangeably in the in the book, um, in that, um, you know, the kind of they are they are caused by the same mechanisms. But um, I'd say that the climate crisis counts more of uh, as a blow in that um you know it's an objective reality whereas kind of you know the anthropocene is is something that we're that we're naming that we're kind of pointing out um that said i suppose yeah also the 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 traces in the strata um would would count as that but i i suppose the climate cri the climate crisis this is the thing that's undoing civilization so the Anthropocene is, you know, something that kind of in the future will be able to read the the, the traces of humanity in um, in the strata, but it's not. That's not what's kind of um, you know shaking our our civilization at, at its foundation. So I say I'd say that the climate crisis kind of fulfills that more in you know in the way that it's going to be. It is already and is going to continue to disrupt water supply and food supply and 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 all these other pl plethora of effects that um, we are experiencing and expecting. Right. So we have a question from Robert. I can unmute you here. Thank you. I'll, I'll turn on my video as well. Hopefully that's that's on. Um, that was fascinating. Thing. Thank you, um, Gemma. May I ask about something that you said, which I, I was in, I think, the penultimate chapter. You said about how, and, and I wasn't, I'm not 100% sure on the, the text that you use as an example of this. Mm -hmm. But you said something along the lines that um, you thought it was interesting how language um, could be used to, to demonstrate connections with the natural world in a in a in a in an animist or with a, with a non-human world, in an animist way, is, does that sound broadly 
have I understood that sort of correctly? Um, sort of, yeah. I, it's totally my fault. I tried to, you know, compress a very long chapter into a sentence. Of course, so, yeah. Um, but um, so it's kind of, um, it's to do with what, what I'm talking about, this animism, this life of language. So the way that um, when we read texts and, you know, particularly literary texts, but all texts, that, that language has this kind of um, life of its own. So it, it always does things that are beyond authorial contention, uh, intention. And so etymology okay. is one example of this, but, but you know, the way that um, kind of through sonic resonances, so through rhymes, through the like very materiality of, um, of the words, the, 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 text can kind of do things. Um, David Wills has a book called um, Inanimation that I quote from, and, and he talks about texts as kind of singing to themselves in this kind of call and response. So every time you hear a repetition from, whether that's like a repetition of a, of a letter through a sentence or a certain sound or a concept that there's this kind of you know rather than language being this linear thing that there's this like interweaving of of connections on the page and so the way that um it does that means that the text is always always more than kind of um than the words on the page and, and i guess another aspect of this as well is is the very strangeness of of reading in that you know you kind of what you literally have is some letters some little black marks on a page this creates a whole universe of of meaning um in your mind and so you're having this kind of strange hallucination where you are simultaneously seeing these small black marks but you're also seeing something totally different um, and so this is, um, I suggest, like a, 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 its own form of life. And the way that we can't really like pin down language and we can't ever kind of control these effects is analogous to the way that, that um, non-human life forms are radically other, are, are dynamic and kind of uncontrollable or wild. Um, yeah, uh, Sarah Wood, who is another important thinker, um, her book Without Mastery is is really wonderful. If anyone hasn't read it, um, she says something like, um, "What what can compare to the wild insistence of a fragment of writing?" And like, is just really attuned to this. Yeah, this kind of life of language, and so it's just kind of, um, you know, not saying that the life of language and the life of of um organic beings is the same thing but rather that they can they can both kind of uh help us to to think the other one um and so therefore in that chapter i'm also thinking about you know the experience of writing about non-human animals about writing about the more than human world um and that kind of actually fiction and metaphor um is a is uh a better way to do it because when you're you know if you're writing in kind of non-fictional way or like in a very kind of scientific way you're sort of denying the fact that language has all these effects whereas what we call literary writing is is kind of is um aware of these effects and allows them to play out and then um so that kind of you know the 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 effects the liveliness of the writing um can can kind of countersign what it's the the liveliness of what it's trying to describe. Um, yeah, I hope that makes some sense.
we have actually a good follow-up question on, on this idea of, of text and writing in literary forms. So in, in the chat, so Verity asked, you know, if you consider extending your thoughts on human narcissism and animism into non-textual narratives, uh, such as exhibition narratives composed of text, but also objects, arrangements, architecture, and so on. Yeah, um, I mean, I haven't thought of that specifically, but but one thing that I am also trying to show in the book is that um, human language is um, is kind of just one form of uh, what Derridian deconstructionists call the trace. Um, so, you know, that scent and fossils and paw prints and all of this is is our kind of traces too. And obviously with um, biosemiotics, we see that all life forms actually use um, semiotics. So from right down from single cells um, all the way up to kind of animal um, calls that that kind of trace making that meaning making is a fundamental um, part of the living world and so um, human language is is just one form of that and therefore this kind of animism of of language um, that I'm talking about is is everywhere including indeed in in non-textual narrative so I, I haven't personally um, tried to read uh, exhibitions or arrangements or anything but um, I definitely kind of see that it could be done and, and, and should be done. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a, a question about the, I guess the second blow, um, the Darwinian blow in that, I mean, what's, what's interesting about the proposition then is yes, while evolution and evolutionary theory then connected humans to non-human animals. So there's a, there's a sense that, okay, we're all in the same, lines at the same time evolution as a theory placed humans at the top right so so it's particularly homo sapiens right um are this uh form that's at the at the pinnacle and and certainly in the 1800s this is how they they talk about it and think about it right it's it's a an ascent of man um to this pinnacle spot so how does that play in to this idea that it it undercuts our idea of us being uh unique or exclusive but yet also you know emphasizes that we're we're at the top of the chain um yeah, I mean, I think that that evolution is radically non teleological. So I, I, I mean, obviously, it was interpreted that way of people being in the top. And I think, it, you know, mainly in a way for it to be kind of uh, stomachable for uh, people who were very kind of beholden to the to the previous um, narratives. Um, but I think you know, any any deep understanding of of evolution kind of necessarily gives the um, gives the idea that that kind of there there is no dividing line. Dar Darwin himself saw this, and and you know, and he kind he even the thing that the things that are often seen as proper to human beings, language being being one of those. You know, he he completely understood 
that that was also a product of natural selection and, and he uses the exact same terms he he says that it's it's curious how similar um the two processes of natural selection are with these kind of you know mutations and extinctions that happen in language and and so the idea of the evolution of language is actually older than the idea of the evolution of life and obviously darwin didn't um uh, live long enough to kind of realize uh, to ha kind of have that uh, similarity vindicated but obviously when with the revelation of dna and the genome we kind of we we see exactly that that life in fact is is textual at bottom and so um they they both are um but yeah it's uh i haven't really answered your question sorry um I guess as well, it's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to write from, from this standpoint. So kind of, even though perhaps, uh, evolution wasn't fully understood, the full implications of it weren't understood or taken into account then now from our, from our current standpoint, you know, kind of climate change comes to, to show us that again, it shows us this radical interconnection. It shows us, you know, um, the, the ways in which, uh, living systems are are so deeply so radically interconnected and you know of course with um uh post margulis and kind of really understanding the the symbiotic basis of life um you know kind of evolution comes has a completely different color when we when we understand it not through this kind of struggle and competition where there could be a winner i.e us but but rather that but everything is kind of codependent you had a question yeah um <laughs> hopefully this isn't too stupid of a question and i i look forward to reading your book but i haven't had a chance to read it yet um i'm just wondering about like the role of gender and maybe um, the way that you chose your sources. So obviously Freud in thinking about his um, three blows, this is sort of a very patriarchal view, but I was just sort of noticing in your excerpts that you um, have chosen to use some female authors. Um, and so I don't know, I was just sort of wondering if you could talk a little bit about gender and whether or not that played a role in your choices of texts to examine. Um, yeah. Um, the short answer is no, not really. Um, I think if I was, you know, if I was writing the book again now, I would maybe be more conscious of that. But honestly, um, I, I didn't really choose the text, like the texts chose to be in the book. <laughs> um, I really, you know, I kind of, I was, I knew I was working on animism. I knew I was working on climate change. And at some point I kind of sort of read those three blows and thought, okay, this could be like a really good way to frame the book. And then it was like, as I was, as I was starting out on each chapter, I really didn't know what the literary texts were going to be. And then they kind of, um, they kind of just, just came to me and, you know, I kind of let that happen because, because of this notion that I'm trying to put forward of, of the animism of literature. And so I'm like, okay, that's, you know, this book wants to be in it. So it's going to be there. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I wish I could give you like a more, um, I don't know, uh, 
sophisticated answer of of uh, how I chose female writers to represent the problem, but that would be untrue. I mean, that's often how it is, you know, when you find your sources, uh, not necessarily anything wrong with that. Uh, I was wondering, Gabriella, would you like to ask your question in person? Um, just to, yeah. So, so I, I'm sorry, in the chat, it's a little convoluted, but I was, I was kind of trying to piggyback in some ways on, and I think Micah fits into this and Verity fix, fits into it. And Dolly's question about language, right? So some of the things you're talking about are um, animations and literature of non-verbal, I, I, I'm not quite sure how to ask it in a proper way, right? So I want to talk in terms of linguistic beings. So like a worm doesn't talk verbally, that doesn't mean it doesn't communicate as ants, right? And so sort of this idea about language, nonverbal language, animism, and how you kind of do that because it seems, and I, I, and I, I have not read your book, so I apologize if this is not a proper question which you've addressed in the book, um, about nonverbal entities and how they communicate and how one knows about them. And, and then maybe reflect a little bit back about the Freud, because I'm gonna go back to kind of make us a little bit challenge. I'm gonna go back to that about like why those texts, not necessarily about gender, but about verbal versus nonverbal and communication. Sorry if that's a bit long-winded. Sure. Um, so with the kind of nonverbal or non-human forms of, of communication, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to interpret what the trees are saying to us um if they are saying anything to us um but rather just recognizing that kind of the way that human signification works is is the way that signification works in general in that um in between the mark made so whether that is um a word on a page or a footprint in the sand or um a scent uh, like a pheromone in the air, um, you know, there is, there is a space, there is a gap between the mark itself and what it means to the reader, whether that is a human or another animal. Um, and that, and that something emerges out of that gap. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that's the space where, where, where meaning grows in human texts. And that's obviously what I'm concerned with, but, but that also, you know, that that is kind of, uh, fundamental to to the ways that uh, signification processes that that mark making um, happens and is interpreted in the world. Um, I hope that answers your question. Um, and then more on why those texts. Um, so I, I, I assume you're talking about the literary texts. Is that right? Um, so. Uh, yeah, so, okay, so it, the book opens with Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis. Um, and, uh, you know, as is very famous, he 
awakes one morning from uneasy dreams to find that he has turned into a monstrous vermin um and 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 then it goes on and says that like his his room his proper human beings room was suddenly very small um and i basically read that as a kind of allegory of climate change obviously this story has been read as an allegory of, of so many things but you know that that we wake up one morning and realize that although kind of everything's the same suddenly we are the monstrous vermin or pests of the world we are the ones who are living at the detriment of other beings um and suddenly the planet our home without changing size is suddenly too small um we've kind of you know run out of space for our waste um so yeah that's just one example but kind of it just uh it felt like the text that i was was bringing in um helped me to to make these arguments so to to talk about um you know uh darwin or freud or whatever these 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 texts just kind of um seem to be able to do it for me and to and to say that you know it could have only been these texts and it couldn't have been others is is um is not true at all um i'm sure that there could have been other texts that i could have thought with but yeah these were the ones that that um came up for me and 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 seemed to work so I just want to, to ask then about, um, in a way, the we of your text here. So you you mentioned then that um, not just the we here about climate change, but also the earlier talking about uh, humans and animals, how violence against animals is something acceptable and versus people is not. Uh, so so there's, I mean, in the Anthropocene debate also, there's this, this big idea of like, the the we the human we as actors is not uh you know we're actually not one big we um that is it's uh many different uh groups here so how do you relate to this in in your book do you do you address that uh how do your your text that you work with address that yeah um so yeah i do i do bring up the fact that of course uh the notion that you know we humans did this to the world is is um, fails to take into account the the unequal distribution of of responsibility and um, and suffering um, that that we're seeing. But then, as I just did there, it's very difficult to not use the word we. Um, uh, so I do, you know, I do use it. I do try and reflect on it um, at least uh, one point. Um, I'm trying to think whether there's a way that um, I'm thinking about environmental justice through any of the literary texts. Um, I think yeah with the with the literary text I don't I don't really get into that but um yeah more just kind of thinking about the way that um this kind of human narcissism which is obviously a theme in the book um when Freud writes about narcissism he you know he talks about individual narcissism but he is also talking about it at the level of a group or society um 
and so that there's this kind of uh, ego ideal that is that is built up that actually kind of becomes pathological. So that would be kind of part of um, the problem of these of the yeah pathological relations that we have with um, with ourselves and with other cultures. Um, because yeah, it's kind of lacking the the humi humility and the the kind of insight of reality because uh we we in the west you know believe that we're so um modern and progressive and and civilized and all of that so sam has an interesting question here um asking if you can expand um on what is made available to us by thinking with the term animism as opposed to other neo-materialist modes of thought such as vibrant matter or the Cthulhu scene the centering animated life around the risk of emphasizing animal and plant life over the agency of rivers, weather, living things that we find hard to imagine as living, such as bacteria or viruses. Uh, or is this perhaps an intentional shift of focus back onto questions of how to live uh, in more, I guess, with more than one or live as more than raw materiality? Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, all of these different terms have their own value and their own provocations. Um, and, you know, we don't just need one. Um, but um, I don't think that animism privileges uh, animal and plant life over these other forms of agency. Um, so uh, anima comes from um, the Latin life, spirit, breath. Um, and there is actually this um, really interesting uh, confluence of that within languages all over the world. So I do talk about this a little bit in the book where this kind of link where, you know, in, in Latin, you have the anima, life, spirit, mind, agency, that link, that conceptual link between those things occurs in so many languages. So it's, it's as if, um, there's it, it names something that is beyond or before language this kind of realization of this you know kind of lively living force um and so i like the term because of the way that it encapsulates all of that and because it kind of quite effectively translates all of these these um different worldviews um and and you know in in animist ontologies um certainly rivers and and rocks are seen as as spirited agencies so i don't i don't think that it um that it uh cuts those out and and of course you know as i've said several times now i'm thinking about the animism of language which is a non-organic um entity so that is also a form of life and then also you know i'm, I'm suggesting that um you know climate change itself is this kind of animistic thing it's it's showing us the the this kind of non-living agency and you know climate change is not a life form um it is yeah just it, it has this kind of this dynamism this this agency that is akin to organic life yeah, I'm thinking of a couple things here um, that follow on with that um, about, you know, the, the idea of belonging with or living with, all right, so, so that um, all of the things that are animate and are part of the, the living um, that humans need to do. So that's been discussed within environmental humanities, and this fits quite well with those um, thoughts. 
And often those are coming, I think, from, um, I've been inspired by indigenous thinkers, indigenous uh, writing. So whether that's uh, Kemmerer's um, braiding sweetgrass, um, Zoe Todd's work on, on pluralism and um, fish as kin. So I'm wondering um, how you relate or do you relate to those literatures that are coming uh, kind of pushing back against the kind of Western science that is Darwin and, and Freud, um, but instead from an indigenous perspective, which I think what you're describing is very much in line with um, their, um, you know, the things they advocate. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as I said, I don't, I'm not really kind of trying to, to engage in a deep way with, with, uh, these kind of more specific um animistic ontologies because because i'm trying to to show that it's everywhere and that you know that that also western science is is animistic too um so that you know kind of uh the 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 notion of the objective scientist is is a pure myth that that there is always this kind of entanglement and and you know we see this very clearly with um quantum physics, which is something that I talk about in the book with with relation um, to Wolf, because she was kind of very aware of the um, the quantum physics of her time. But, you know, this kind of um, the fact that uh, the, you know, experiments were, cha were changed by the fact that observations were being made. And, you know, uh, it's not um, that the quantum reality is different from the the larger reality it's quantum all the way down um and so you know this kind of this this deep interaction i mean this also kind of uh, goes into to karen barrod's work um kind of that is that is everywhere so so and and i and i'm trying to show that there is an animism in that there is and, and that um reading itself is animistic so of course what i was talking about before about reading um words on a page that has an animism to it right you're you're bringing it to life um in a way that when your book's just sitting there uh not being read it's kind of um a little bit inert um but that reading is not just what we do to books reading is what we do in the world so you know we we read someone's facial expressions we we read the pavement as we're as we're walking and that, that there is also always this kind of um creativity we, you know we have this kind of illusion um that our eyes and our brain give us that you know we're in this kind of real world and that we experience it but, but actually we know you know very clearly now with kind of modern neuroscience that um the world as we experience it is very much a creation of our our brain it is it is a reading it is an interpretation that um you know helps us to to get by but that doesn't mean that um it is giving us an objective or a real reality it makes me wonder then it's like does all this require a reader then uh in the way you embrace it i mean in a way it's the uh you know if a tree falls in the wood and no one's there to see it so if if there is animism in things but no one's there to read it um is there animism exactly yeah well because humans aren't the only readers mm -hmm. so so you know yes there needs to be a reader but that reader might be 
you know a non-human or a non-living entity it's um you know it's just the way that uh kind of traces transcend their time and and then have an effect in an in another time so yeah really kind of i'm pushing for this a very expansive notion of both writing and reading good, good also good way to take the concept of we and really upscale it right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 that's nice uh do we have any other questions for Gemma? Well, I guess the, the last one that struck me when you were talking just there was about naming something. Um, so how things when they're named can can then be somehow, you know, well, read in a particular way. And thinking about climate change here and environmental change, how important do you think it is that we, well, that we use specific words um you know whether you know a concept like animism in the way that we talk about things in order to name them do you find that has a particular potency yeah definitely um but it's also it's kind of it's not just using specific words um that have a certain potency but it's also being aware of the potency um and kind of and 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 remembering not to take words on their surface value um and maybe actually just kind of to to round off i can talk briefly about um the subtitle of the book which is um reading for the end of the world which sounds very apocalyptic um and you know i do in in one sense I, I i did mean it in this way that you know kind of i'm thinking about reading that that's appropriate to this time of catastrophic climate change um but again i'm also thinking about a deeper etymological sense of the word world um and so this word comes from the old danish where eld meaning man age um so that where is the same where as in a werewolf and eld is age um and so uh i also want that subtitle to be read as um a reading that is for the end of the where eld and for the end of the age of man um and by that i'm not advocating for the extinction of the human um but rather recognizing that the future of human life depends upon the end of a world in which human beings narcissistically act as if they're separable from or independent of other living beings um and so yeah that just to kind of give an example of you know the word world is one that we sort of throw around without ever like giving that kind of deeper attention to um to its origins and to its to its deeper meanings and i i think the kind of attention that we can give to words like that can kind of reveal the like deep sedimentation the like long histories of um our language and the everything that it has enabled for better or worse thank you i think that's a great conclusion to uh to this talk too so thank you then to uh Gemma Deer for coming to talk about her book radical animism and thank you to all the people who participated in in the audience thank you both so much <laughs>